3 billion human lives ended on August 29, 1997. The survivors of the nuclear fire called the war Judgment Day. They lived only to face a new nightmare, the war against the machines. When we watched the rise of the machines in Terminator 2, 2029 felt so far away there was no need to worry about it. Now, the exponential curve in the rise of technology is happening and artificial intelligence and robots are getting smarter and faster to the extent some of the world's greatest thinkers such as Elon Musk believe a Skynet could be on the cards. I think we really need to be more concerned about deep AI. You read a lot of science fiction. Is it giving you nightmares at the moment? This, this... It has given me nightmares, yeah. Whereas on the other hand, some others think we shouldn't be worried at all and we should be inspired that we're witnessing the next great leap forward for humankind. We are living into an extraordinary decade ahead. My name is Tommy McCubbin, advertising creative director, startup founder, dad and podcaster. And this is Future Sandwich. Welcome to episode five, Hello Robots, where we dive into the rise of machines and have a look at what is happening on the front line and the people that are making the future happen today. Hey Siri, can you help me introduce the podcast? I'm not sure what you said there. Oh, that's cool. Don't worry about it, Siri. So robots aren't new. They've been part of our lives for decades. You're using one right now to listen to this podcast, and this is probably in a long list of robots you've already used today. Calculators, ATMs, vending machines, cruise control in your car, and ever-helpful Siri, and even the Google search. They're all robots. It's just we stop calling them useful robots once they become baked into our lives and we start using other names for them. Like Google Search, we don't think of that as a robot, but it's one of the most sophisticated and popular robots of all time. When we think of robots, we have this vision that robots are human-like objects made of steel with glazing red eyes. Hollywood has shown us how this could play out. Evil robots are the ultimate villain. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey created Hal. James Cameron's Terminator 2 introduced Skynet, which wipes out LA. And Michael Bay at his best in the Transformers series, where humans and ally robots, the Autobots, fend off the Decepticons as they try and destroy Earth. And more recently, Ex Machina, which I'm watching this weekend, but in the meantime, our sound engineer, Matt, will give a quick review. Thanks, Tommy. So the synopsis. A young programmer is selected to participate in a groundbreaking experiment in synthetic intelligence by evaluating the human qualities of a breathtaking humanoid AI. Ex Machina covers some pretty interesting areas. For example, the Turing test, something I wasn't aware of until watching this film, created by Alan Turing in the 1950s. Are you building an AI? I've already built one. And over the next few days, you're going to be the human component in the Turing test. It's when a human interacts with a computer. And if the human doesn't know they're interacting with a computer, the test is passed. It also raises questions on the ethical nature of machine and man. Should man, as a creator, be allowed to decide on a machine's fate? Particularly if that machine were to have feelings like fear, love and emotions as we do. Wouldn't that machine then start to have the same kind of rights that we do? What will happen to me if I fail your test? Do you think I might be switched off because I don't function as well as I'm supposed to? Eva, it's not up to me. Why is it up to anyone? But what do we do if a machine that says, I'm trapped, help me, 
doesn't feel anything at all and is manipulating the situation in order to free itself. And how would we then distinguish this from a machine that actually does feel trapped and therefore needs to be helped? This film toggles those issues beautifully and paints a pretty interesting picture on what we as humans would do in the presence of an advanced humanoid AI. I don't want to give away too much, but let's just say some of the elements covered in the film are both amazing and frightening. Do you have people to test you or might switch you off? No, I don't. Why do I? The scariest part is not their red LED eyes. It's their brain, or their computer, or otherwise known as artificial intelligence, or AI. This is the bit that has the potential to destroy us. Humans have created a computer that does do a form of learning. It's called deep learning. This is Peter Diamandis from Exponential Wisdom Podcast. Deep learning is a process that mimics the brain and has effectively these layers of neural nets. And deep learning is something which is a computer that's able to learn very much in the way that the brain learns. And it's been applied a multitude of different ways. We see deep learning as the underlying driver for Google Photos that can... I love Google Photos. It takes all the photos I take on my iPhone or my Android phone, and it categorizes them by people, by location, by what is context, what it's seeing. Is this on a plane? Is it in a boat? Is that a dog? Is it a car? What is it? So deep learning is actually not a person programming a computer, this is a cat. It's a computer learning on its own. These are the parameters that make something a cat. And so deep learning is coming on strong in a huge way. Deep learning is why some people think Hollywood's depiction of destructive, evil robots and AI is accurate, at least as far as the intent to take over Earth. And by engineering robots and AI, we're summoning the devil. Here is an interview with Elon Musk in January 2016. Elon has produced one of the most impressive robots in the form of his Tesla car, and more recently the 7.0 update that included the autopilot feature where you can for the first time be driven and controlled by a robot with near full automation. You've taken a lot of interest in artificial intelligence. Uh, uh, This is becoming an artificially intelligent car. Well, it's narrowly, narrow artificial intelligence. Um, You've also expressed concern about where that's heading. Is that because you've looked at what that car can do and have thought... What happens if it develops a mind of its own? Why, why are you worried? No, we don't need to be concerned about the cars. The cars, this is, I mean, car, a car is not deep AI. It's a, it's a narrow use case. Um, you know, we're not trying to build sentience into the car. Um, it's just trying to look at the lines on the road and steer correctly. Um, and I would consider that to be essentially a solved problem. Um, it's just a question of... Um, refining the details of the technology and bringing that to market um, and then improving um, the nines of reliability. So um, in in order to have a self-driving car, you really have to have many nines of reliability. So it's 99.9999%, something like that, is is how good it needs to be. Um, Or, you know, let's say, to first approximation, um, you'd want a self-driving car to be an order of magnitude uh, safer than a human-driven car. And if, if, if you're like, okay, it's 10 times safer, then it's like there's no more doubt, there's no more debate um, about wh- which one is safer. Um, but it's, it's still a narrow use case. Um, the the car is not going to develop uh, consciousness um, or decide that they want to take over the world or something like that. Um, I think we really need to be more concerned about uh, 
deep AI. Yeah. And why do we need to be concerned about that? Well, I mean, because there are, I think, scenarios where um, if there's some vast intelligence that um, uh, either develops a will of its own or is subject to the will of a small number of people, um, then we could have uh, an undesirable future. If you want to read a real scary one, I'd say uh, uh, Harlan Ellison's I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream will give you nightmares. You read a lot of science fiction. Is it giving you nightmares at the moment? This, this it has given me nightmares, yeah. While some have nightmares, others have dreams where we are on the brink of something quite magical. Dreams that we are living through the next great human revolution. If you were going to make a robot to wipe us out, it wouldn't look like a human. It would probably be a swarm of 100 micro drones with 360 night vision and infrared, loaded with bioweapons. The rise of clever robots has been happening for a long time. They have been beating humans at intellectual challenges for decades. So let's run through some of their greatest hits. People started taking AI seriously in 1997, when IBM's Deep Blue took down chess champion Garry Kasparov. This was suspense beyond anything the world of chess had ever known. Garry Kasparov, 34 years old, a cheerful and confident player throughout a dominating career, hovered over his pieces in the deciding game of a match with an implacable challenger. Deep Blue, a computer. Kasparov won the first game in a breeze, but the next day he got the shock of his life. To Kasparov, Deep Blue played the second game much more strongly, differently. Unlike a computer, he said, Kasparov conceded. And the loss wore on his mind for the rest of the match. In each of the next three games, the world's preeminent chess players, man and machine, battled each other to a draw. Kasparov's early scorn for Deep Blue's abilities had proven a great mistake. In the final game, the computer led with the white pieces. And soon, Kasparov's fans had to admit that the once unthinkable might actually be happening. How had it come to this? Yet Deep Blue versus Kasparov was justly called historic. The programmers had proved it was possible to build a chess-playing machine that could defeat the best human opponent. Nevertheless, the machine they had built did not play chess by thinking in the same way a human does. A machine that can think remains the dream, and it's still many years and quite a few startling breakthroughs away. Then, in 2011, AI successfully beat a world champ at something far more complex, American game show Jeopardy. More on that showdown on one of America's most beloved game shows, Jeopardy. Two human champions going brain-to-brain with a supercomputer named Watson. We dispatched David Muir to tell us what we've learned about man versus machine. Let's take alternate meanings for 200, Alex. Call it man versus machine, superstar contestants against the supercomputer. Watson was off and running. Losing to him by one hundredth of a second. Watson. Who is Michael Phelps? Yes, Watson. Oh. What is the last judgment? Correct. Go again. Watson. Who is Jean Valjean? Correct. And today, when we saw what makes Watson tick, 
He's loaded with a world of data, 10 refrigerator-sized racks of servers. When Alex Trebek delivers that clue to the humans, a text of the clue is sent to Watson, who searches his hard drives for the answer. A long way since that first computer with a hard drive in the 60s could store about one Manhattan phone book. Watson can now hold 12 million of them. In the 80s, IBM's first PC could understand about 5,000 words. Watson, 125 billion. But sometimes that data misses the human subtlety. Stylish elegance or students who all graduated in the same year. Watson. What is chic? No, sorry. What is class? Class, you got it. The mere mortal got it right. Viewers might be asking, what does the future hold after watching a supercomputer like Watson take on two champion contestants? But scientists will tell you that even though Watson can handle 80 trillion instructions per second, that the human brain is still capable of far more. Take that, Watson. David Muir. Along with Watson. ABC News. New York. And just a few weeks ago in Austin, Texas, Google's AlphaGo AI beat Lee Settle at a game called Go. For those that don't know Go, it's basically chess on crack. There are 10 times more pieces on the board, and there are more outcomes than there are atoms in the universe. Here is the defeated ex-champ Lee Settle in the post-match conference. Human versus machine smackdown. I said I am confident because I thought that it would be still difficult for the computer's artificial intelligence to read the human sense, such as intuition. However, what I felt from listening to the explanation about the algorithm was that AlphaGo may be able to mimic the intuition of humans to a certain degree. And here is the man behind AlphaGo, and where he and his employer Google stand on its potential, be that good or bad. And certainly at DeepMind and at Google, uh, we uh, worry about lots of these things, and we, uh, we are kind of thought leaders on the ethics uh, front of uh, you know, how these systems should be used in a way that will benefit the many and not the few, and will benefit society for the good. So robots that take down humans don't need to take the form of a human like C-3PO with two arms and two legs and two front-facing eyes. They can just be a simple box like AlphaGo. The only reason why you'd want to have a robot that's like a human is to do human tasks with an interface or tool that's designed for a human, such as opening a door handle, using a handheld drill, or driving a car. So the big question, when will they start taking our jobs? Well, they already are and will continue to. Think about the guy in the mail room. We don't need you anymore. We've got email. Factory workers. We've seen car factories with those giant hydraulic arms making cars faster than humans ever could. The supermarket cashier. As painful as they are, those self-checkouts are the future of supermarkets. Some careers that have an almost certain future to be replaced. Radiologists. There is a robot that can see a spot on a lung with 96% accuracy, compared to that of a human radiologist of 65% accuracy. I know who I want looking at my x-rays. Bus drivers, truck drivers, taxi drivers, beware. Full automation is happening and faster than you think. But the robots are only designed to do tasks. Watson that won Jeopardy couldn't bake a cake. And AlphaGo couldn't teach a classroom of children. There are jobs that won't be affected. Jobs that require a human touch. I wouldn't leave a robot to babysit my kids. I wouldn't be happy to check my mum into a hospital knowing a robot was her nurse. I don't care how polished the hardware looks, the bedside manner of a robot would be awful. But this is the beginning of a whole new way of working where the crappy jobs are outsourced and we can get on with being great at what we're great at, being human, being creative, showing empathy, reading subtleties and feeling emotions. To help us solve some of the biggest problems and diagnose some of the cruelest medical diseases, 
Already we're seeing great leaps forward in medicine, as Peter Diamandis tells. Probably the best part of it is what's coming down the pike in health. Last month, I had the pleasure of announcing with Qualcomm Foundation something called the $10 million Qualcomm Tricorder X Prize. We're challenging teams around the world to basically combine these technologies into a mobile device that you can speak to because it's got AI, you can cough on it, you can do a finger blood prick, and to win, it needs to be able to diagnose you better than a team of board-certified doctors. So literally, imagine this device in the middle of the developing world where there are no doctors, 25% of the disease burden and 1.3% of the healthcare workers. When this device sequences an RNA or DNA virus that it doesn't recognize, it calls the CDC and prevents the pandemic from happening in the first place. Humans have epic potential when we work with AI, not against it. To embrace it, not fear it. To use it as a tool and not see it as a threat. Futurist Ray Kurzweil tells of how the next intellectual evolution of humans will be a small chip that's actually implanted in our brains, which can access the power of AI. 20 years from now, we'll have nanobots, because another exponential trend is the shrinking of technology. They'll go into our brain, into the, through the capillaries, and basically connect our neocortex to uh, synthetic neocortex in the cloud, providing extension of our neocortex. Now today, I mean, you have a computer in your phone, but if you need 10,000 computers for a few seconds to do a complex search, you can access that for a second or two in the cloud. In the 2030s, you need some extra neocortex, you'll be able to connect to that in the cloud directly from your brain. So I'm walking along and I say, oh, there's Chris Anderson. He's coming my way. I better think of something clever to say. I've got three seconds. My 300 million modules in my neocortex isn't going to cut it. I need a billion more. I'll be able to access that in the cloud. And our thinking then will be a hybrid of biological and non-biological thinking. But the non-biological portion is subject to my law of accelerating returns. It will grow exponentially. And remember what happened the last time We expanded our neocortex. That was two million years ago when we became humanoids and developed these large foreheads. Other primates have a slanted brow. They don't have the frontal cortex. But the frontal cortex is not really qualitatively different. It's a quantitative expansion of neocortex. But that additional quantity of thinking was the enabling factor for us to take a qualitative leap and invent language and art and science and technology and TED conferences. No other species has done that. And so over the next few decades, we're going to do it again. We're going to again expand our neocortex, only this time it won't be limited by a, you know, a fixed architecture of, of uh, enclosure. Uh, it'll be expanded without limit. That additional quantity will again be the enabling factor for another qualitative leap in culture and technology. Thank you very much. I don't think that AI and robots are a threat. I think they're an opportunity. They'll help drive the next chapter of humankind, our planet, and beyond. So for those that are scared, I understand. I'm a little bit scared too, but I'm more excited than scared. Let Ray Kurzweil give you some words of comfort. We're not going to take a leap from this stage to the world of 2035 or 2045. We do that one step at a time. So things I described 30 years ago that we see today, you know, billions of people connected to each other and sharing knowledge That seemed creepy at the time. Lots of things seemed creepy. We take it one step at a time. 
And we quickly get used to these changes. F five years ago, people didn't use social networks, uh, wikis like Wikipedia, blogs. That sounds like ancient history. Now that it's here, we think it's always been here. We can't imagine life without it. So we'll be taking small steps. And, you know, there'll be early adopters. Uh, then by the time it's actually ubiquitous, it, it won't be news anymore because it'll have been around for a while. Uh, and we get used to these things quickly. And to end episode five on a high, here is Peter Demundis. Ladies and gentlemen, what gives me tremendous confidence in the future is the fact that we are now more empowered as individuals to take on the grand challenges of this planet. We have the tools with this exponential technology. We have the passion of the DIY innovator. We have the capital of the, of the techno-philanthropist. And we have three billion new minds coming online to work with us, to solve the grand challenges, to do that which we must do. We are living into an extraordinary decades ahead. Thank you. And I'd like to introduce Laura, who's the Future Sandwich intern, to run through the credits. Thanks, guys. Big thanks to Peter Diamandis for the snippets from his TED Talk and the always awesome Exponential Wisdom Podcast. All links are in the show notes at futuresandwich.com. Also thanks to Ray Kurzweil. He's a brilliant mind. Get on his stuff at TED. See some links in the show notes. And, of course, we need to thank all the robots. You are especially helpful. Even you, Siri. And most importantly, Matt Thompson for editing like a boss. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to Future Sandwich on iTunes or follow on SoundCloud or get new episodes in your inbox by signing up at futuresandwich.com. Also, give Tommy a shout on Twitter at T McCubbin. He's always up for hearing what you think or any suggestions of people we should talk to, people who are making the future happen today. That's a wrap for Episode 5, Hello Robots. See you next time when we're talking about the future of drones or health. We haven't quite decided yet. <laughs>